Michael Behrens is currently an investigative reporter for the Seattle Times. He started his journalism career at the Columbus Dispatch, working his way up to a reporter on the third shift of the police beat. During his shift, 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., Columbus, Ohio could feel a little like Roswell, New Mexico. There was a woman who called into the police department occasionally, and she would say that there's a death ray from outer space that was a big beam of light was coming down from the sky and it was hitting the vacant field behind her home and there were rabbits in the field and if the beam of light hit a rabbit, the rabbit would keel over and die. The woman's reports became weekly occurrences and the police labeled her a mental case. Finally, an officer was dispatched to warn the woman that charges would be filed against her if she kept hassling the police. Here's Barron's again with what the officer found. And so where I picked up on the police beat is I saw the police officer's report from when he went to the home. And it was written like a police report, you know, at oh, you know, 1900, I approached the home. As I was walking towards the front door, I saw a beam of light come from the sky. And I saw the beam of light hit a rabbit, and I saw the rabbit keel over and die. Seriously, that's what the report said. And then the report said, also, I noticed that the police chopper was up in the air. And the guys were up there in the chopper target shooting rabbits with the searchlight and they would shoot rabbits from the chopper in their spare time for fun. Again, this is in the early 1980s. As it happens, the truth is out there, and sometimes it's outlined neatly in a police report. This week's episode is all about crime, everything from tracking gun violence to fact-checking crime stats. I'm George Varney, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast, IRE, with you on your beat for over 30 years. On this episode, we'll hear from NBC5 Chicago News Director Deborah Juarez, who will share how her newsroom had to make an ethical decision following one of their investigations with the Cook County Sheriff's Department. We went out on a sting with them and uh, got uh, undercover video of, of John soliciting prostitutes, and we had a lot of internal discussion about were we going to identify the men who were soliciting. Later, journalists will talk about their experiences covering the cops and getting data behind gun distribution and violence. Steve Thompson from the Dallas Morning News suggests looking critically at crime data offered from police departments and provides tips for checking the accuracy yourself. If you see a drastic drop in crime in your area, you know, don't take the cops' word for it. You know, they'll give you all kind of reasons. LA Times data editor Ben Poston will explain how he investigated crime stats, and David S. Fallis, a staff writer on the Washington Post's investigation unit, will walk us through how he combined two data sets to track down the sources of guns used in crimes. Fallis had to create his own data set because the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms wasn't going to give out their own data anytime soon. You're not going to get the ATF to give you trace data. It's not going to happen. I mean, they're just, they're, they, they're federal, if, if they do, Congress takes away their funding. And that's all coming up on the IRE Radio Podcast. Deborah Juarez is the news director at NBC5 Chicago. I sat down with her during the recent IRE conference in San Francisco to talk about investigative ethics and specifically her decision whether or not to name suspects in police stories. One of the uh, stories that we had a lot of discussion with recently was we did a story. Um, the Cook County Sheriff's Department had implemented a program to try to combat a human trafficking problem in Cook County in Chicago because it's a huge problem there. And they instituted this program where, in addition to arresting of offenders, Johns, who were soliciting prostitutes, they were also fining them $1,000 for each violation. 
And what we found was that they had, since they instituted that program, there were no repeat offenders because people didn't want to pay the $1,000 fine. So we went out on a sting with them and uh, got uh, undercover video of, of John soliciting prostitutes. And we had a lot of internal discussion about were we going to identify the men who were soliciting. And there was a, quite a few discussions back and forth with our attorney and our standards person. And basically, the conclusion we came to is that it, you know it was at the end of the day it was a misdemeanor. It was they paid a fine for it. They were arrested, but we determined that we could tell the story without identifying them, and that the story was not going to lose the impact. We did profile why each of them. You know, one was a former school teacher, uh, one was a convicted murderer. So we profiled one was a college student, and so we profiled the types of people that were doing this, which runs the gamut from you know successful business person to to you know convicted felons. And we felt we could tell that story without having to identify them. So in the end, we obscured their their identities. But that there was a lot of discussion over how we were going to do that, and we felt at the end that was the right way to approach that story. Thanks again to Deborah Juarez and all the journalists who volunteered to share their stories with us at the conference. We'll have more from them in future episodes. If you attended the event and want to share your experience, be it a favorite panel or think of a place where we could improve, we'd love to hear from you. Drop a line to web, that's web at ire.org. Steve Thompson has done a lot of investigating into the Dallas Police Department as a member of the projects team at the Dallas Morning News. Part of his work has been deconstructing Dallas PD's crime reports. When the police department reported a large decrease in violent crime a few years ago, Thompson familiarized himself with the criteria for crime reports, the FBI's Uniform Crime Report, or UCR. One big distinction he found was between simple and aggravated assaults. An assault is elevated to aggravated when there is serious bodily harm, broken bones, stitches, or if any weapon is used. A weapon could be a gun or a club. Uh, could be a drinking straw if you're trying to gouge somebody's eye out with it. Knowing the difference between simple and aggravated assault is important because only the more serious category is calculated as part of a department's violent crime statistics. What Dallas police started doing was just saying, you know what, if you got a club, you don't cause serious injury, nobody goes to the hospital, we'll just count that as simple assault. Armed with the knowledge of how crime should be classified, Thompson went through a week's worth of samples, 500 crime reports, from the Dallas PD. They classified 75 of the 500 or some as aggravated, and then there were another 40 or so that were simple assaults that it was very clear should have been aggravated. Ben Poston is the assistant data editor at the LA Times. Before that, he worked at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Poston says investigations into crime report data are important because no one else is fact-checking. Just as an example, how to show you how nobody's checking, um, the FBI, they're the ones that run the Uniform Crime Reporting Program. They go to uh, each state every three years, and they check between six and nine agencies, and they do, it, they do what's called a quality assurance review. Um, that's a, it's usually a one- to two-day audit, so that's eight hours or 16 hours. They're going to review a very tiny sample of cases. In Milwaukee's case, they've reviewed 60 cases. And this is an agency that, that produces tens of thousands of crimes e each year. Two-thirds of the largest 30 cities hadn't been audited in you know, five years. Around the same time Dallas was reporting a drop in crime, Milwaukee PD's numbers also suggested they had safer streets than in years past. For many in the city, however, the improved numbers didn't quite mesh with reality. 
beat cops, supervisors, um, it was residents in high crime neighborhoods, it was city councilmen, all just saying like, you know, it's great the crime's down, but we're not really, we don't really believe it's down. Poston followed Thompson's model and went to the Milwaukee PD to get a week-long sample of crime reports. At first, the police readily complied and provided the electronic records without fuss. When Poston wanted the paper records to get more information, the police department claimed the paperwork would cost $4,000 and would take nine months to redact. A lawsuit followed and eventually the Sentinel won, setting an important precedent. The legal proceedings took two years. Eventually, Poston would join the district attorney's case management database, which included the crucial incident report number category, with the raw crime data the police reported to the state. Like Thompson, Poston looked for crimes reported as simple assaults and used the two databases to get a better idea of what actually happened. And in Milwaukee, as in Dallas, Poston found in the reports crimes that were underreported in terms of their severity. Um, and then in the narrative of the attack, it's like, you know, this guy, oh, this was the 2 by 4 this is the one where a guy took a 2x4 and beat his pregnant wife with it. And they put it down as a simple assault. When the ATF wouldn't release federal data on the origins of guns used in crimes, Washington Post reporter David Fallis created his own trace database by merging two different data sets. In some states, state police will keep track of gun sales independently from the records they send to the federal government. So I just filed a public records request with the Maryland State Police. Nobody had ever requested this before, as far as I could tell. And after some back and forth, they didn't argue with me. I was surprised. They sent me a DVD with, oh, I don't know, there were probably six or 700,000 gun sales going back to 1989 or 1990 for the entire state. The data he received from the state police included the gun's serial number, the type of gun, the maker, the date of purchase, the dealer ID number, and a table matching dealer IDs to their addresses. By combining this data with the gun recovery logs from local police, Fallis could now match a gun used in a crime to where it was purchased and when. The crunching, as far for the, on the tech side of things, the crunching required a fair amount of cleaning up the data. The crime gun logs are going to be fairly dirty. People put, you know, fives become S's and Sometimes there's a hyphen and sometimes there's not a dash and, you know, uh, but it's worth it because in the end you, you end up coming up with this pool of guns that, have been, that were sold and you knew where they were picked up. Fallis was able to use the data to calculate time to crime or how long it took for a gun to be used in a crime once it was sold. Most guns used in crime are never picked up and the ones that are have been on the street for an average of 12 years. Young guns, a name for weapon nabbed by police in just a few months, are highly indicative of gun trafficking, he said. The data also allowed reporters to find out which gun stores sold the most weapons used in crimes. In the Maryland area, that store was Rialco. Uh, we traced about 2,500 guns to them. Uh, we also were able to adjust by sales volume, which is something a lot of the stores complain about. You know, I sell a lot of guns, and so we have a lot of gun recoveries. Rialco, one out of eight guns they sold were traced. Maryland Small Arms, uh, which is south of there from not very far away, one out of 24 of their guns were traced. Um, I should also point out, if anybody from Rialco is here, the store is in full compliance with the law. Uh, their inspection records were very clean. Thank you for listening to this week's IRE Radio Podcast. If you did attend the IRE Conference in San Francisco and want to hear a speaker again or catch a panel you missed, or if you're a member who couldn't make to the conference, be sure to check out IRE.org. We're continuing to upload content from the conference, including tip sheets, speaker materials, video, audio, and blog posts. While you're on our website, you can meet the new members of the IRE Board of Directors. Their bios will be online. 
And coming up in September is our Coding for Journalists Bootcamp. It will be September 4th through the 7th in Columbia, Missouri. Registration is first come, first serve, and the link is on our website. As always, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, IRE, or anything else, our inbox is always open at web at ire.org, or you can reach me at George V, that's G-E-O-R-G-E-V, at ire.org. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm George Barney.